Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Joy Clark, and today on the Case Podcast, um, I'm going to be talking to Rich Hickey about uh, closure and um, all of the reasons why closure is the way it is. Uh, thank you, Rich, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so we've had two episodes on closure so far, one with Alex Miller about closure and one with David Nolan about closure script. Um, and so we'll link those in the show notes, but in this episode, uh, so for all the listeners who aren't that familiar with closure, uh, they can go and, and look at those. Uh, but in this episode, I want to c- concentrate kind of on the, the why question, uh, you are the creator of closure. So why did you write closure? Uh, I wrote Clojure because if I had to continue programming in Java, I wouldn't still be a programmer. <laughs> Java or C++ or C Sharp or the languages I was using and consulting at the time. Okay. Uh, so I had uh, become an independent consultant and was still working primarily in C++, but got to do some work in Common Lisp and mm-hmm. realized how I'd been wasting my time. <laughs> for uh, over a decade mm-hmm. and sort of got the bug to figure out a way to use a language like that professionally mm-hmm. and through many paths that eventually led to uh, taking a sabbatical and uh, writing closure. Okay. Uh, so what problems was it designed to solve? Why is it designed the way it is? Uh, it's fundamentally designed to uh, reduce the complexity in programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think programming is far too complex, and there are a bunch of things that make it so. Uh, the primary one, uh, I mean, so, so the domains are complex, and there's no way to get around some of that. But we have a lot of self-inflicted complexity, uh, in particular in languages that aren't functional. Uh, the number one source of complexity is the use of state. So I knew I wanted to write a language that uh, de-emphasized programming with you know places, as I like to say, memory locations, mm-hmm. and emphasized programming with values like other functional languages. Um, and then there are other aspects of complexity that come into programming with any of these uh, more commonly used statically typed languages, uh, which have to do with the complexity in the language space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of just very idiosyncratic stuff in programming languages that is unnecessary. And not only is it unnecessary and, you know, causing complexity in terms of taking up your mental space to understand it and apply it, uh, but it also has other costs in terms mm-hmm. of yielding programs that are uh, larger, more uh, full of more concretions, less general and more brittle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, we've had some episodes about Clojure running on the JVM and on JavaScript. Uh, what other platforms does it run on? There is a CLR port. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that's the only near complete uh, version of, of Clojure. Okay. Do you think there's any other platforms that it would be cool to run for it to run on in the future? I don't think so. Uh, you know, obviously, linkage to you know C is interesting, but I don't think there's as well defined a library space there uh, as there is for Java and .NET, mm-hmm. and that was the main reason to target those. 
I heard there's some kind of uh, like air long port. Is that a possibility that that would be supported in the future? Uh, not by me. Okay. I, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to see people try things, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm completely uninterested in that. I don't know of any phenomenal Erlang libraries I'm dying to use. Ah, okay. Do you regret uh, putting it on the JVM? That was the main. That's the main closure. Because um, the one people who use it are probably Java programmers uh, or coming well, from that, that direction. That's not actually true. Uh, you know, we get as many people coming from. Ruby and Python as we do from Java. We get plenty of people from Java, but uh, no, I don't regret it at all. It's probably one of the most important things to it having succeeded okay. uh, because when people start with a new language that doesn't have libraries, they wait a long time uh, to get uh, up to the power level they expect by having access to libraries. And Clojure had libraries the first day, the very first you know day you mm-hmm. had Clojure, you could use any database in <laughs> in existence because JDBC existed and Clojure could use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite critical to the design of Clojure that it be hosted and that it be hosted on a, a platform like Java. So I don't think that, you know, it's interaction or dependence on Java or JavaScript for the Clojure script case is a negative. I think it's a big positive. It does add something to uh, what you'll have to become familiar with in order to be most mm-hmm. productive. Uh, on the flip side, you can be most productive. That's the point. Okay. Uh, as a pragmatic point, uh, having access to libraries means uh, you have power. Yeah. So Clojure 1.9 was just released. Uh, yep. what's, what's new in Clojure 1.9? So at the language level, it's mostly bug fixes and things like that. Uh, but one of the things that we've been working on uh, is something called Spec, mm-hmm. and Closure Spec is a is a library mm-hmm. uh, for doing uh, for expressing you know what our program is supposed to do, and do they do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, like many things that come into Closure more recently, it is a library. I mean, Closure is a Lisp as a language. You know, by design, it's supposed to stay small. We shouldn't be modifying the language to accomplish new things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we had some architectural things to do so that uh, Clojure itself could use spec um, in its implementation a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that led to a bunch of work, which is maybe hard to see, but quite important around how Clojure consumes dependencies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the biggest thing in 1.9 uh, in the language Um the other thing that came out with 1.9 is a set of tools. This is the first version of Clojure that actually has like a brew installer. Mm-hmm. So you can brew install Clojure. And the other thing it has is a runner, mm-hmm. which um, uh, can analyze dependencies and create a class path and actually you know, procure those dependencies, create a class path and run your program. And this is something that people had gotten from third-party tools, but we never really had a solution for newcomers mm-hmm. who wanted to grab Clojure and use libraries on the first day. So the intention of the um, the installer script is to make it easy to install on your machine, correct? So there's, there's two aspects. There's the installer, which is just a matter of obtaining Clojure. The more important thing is what you get when you run that installer. Uh, and what you get are a set of command line tools that 
um, do this dependency aware invocation of closure. Mm -hmm. So if you want to run anything on the JVM, you have to eventually call Java and provide it with a class path. Mm-hmm. And Clojure works by just supplying only Clojure on the class path. Uh, but when you want to use libraries, they have to be put on the class path, and and you have to get them. Mm-hmm. And the whole getting libraries uh, is a task that people usually um, rely on something like Maven to do for them. Mm-hmm. And then class path building is something that, again, people had to go to um, other tools outside of Clojure, like Linegan or Boot. Uh, to do that. So, you know, the idea of getting started was get closure and get something like Line Again and Boot and learn all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you don't have to because the closure okay. command line tools themselves can uh, find libraries, download them, and uh, incorporate them in the class path. So the, the um, Line Again and Boot are like the Maven equivalent uh, in closure. Um, so basically, um, so does the new installer replace that, or is it intended no, to replace it? <laughs> not, not exactly. I, I think that you know the one of the problems is you know what it is. Uh, those things and Maven uh, do a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of them, most of them do uh, allow you to express your dependencies, and they can procure dependencies, and they can form the class path, and they can be a runner and run closure with that class path. But they also can build generally and or deploy and make Uber jars and all of that. And that aspect of Maven and similarly in these other tools turns them into kind of large monolithic things. Mm -hmm. And another big part of what we're trying to do with this dependency stuff is to separate out and decompose that problem and say this, this part that we've delivered is strictly about dependencies and class path generation, and it doesn't do any building or anything like that. So you sp- still might want a tool like that to uh, to build your final deployable thing. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, like any ideas in the future about providing something similar for um, uh, closure script, so you can never have to go into npm hell ever again? Uh, you know, so I think that the problem of dependencies is a is a big problem. It's one of yeah. the unsolved problems right now for programming, and uh, and I've been thinking a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is on the path towards that. One of the other things that you can do with this new dependency stuff is uh, directly consume code from Git repos oh. by using Git shas as your dependency as opposed to. Um, an artifact in a place, mm-hmm. and it's it's in addition to that. It can consume Maven still. Uh, but the other thing that we did was sort of <laughs> uh, decompose or decomplect uh, dependency, transitive dependency analysis, which most of these tools rely on Maven to do. Mm-hmm. But Maven only understands Maven and only navigates through Maven dependencies. And we now have lifted the transitive dependency an- analyzer out so that it can traverse through Maven dependencies, but also through Git and through more than one way of representing your dependencies. So whether it's a POM or a project config file or the new format that these tools use, which is called depths.eden. So this is super important and it takes us towards where I'd like to see us go, which is a stronger connection between uh, what we're consuming and the source truth of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a big problem is you 
grab a library and you really have no idea, <laughs> no idea what you got. You know, you, you, maybe it has a label that says it's 1.2, but you don't know which functions inside it have changed or why. Mm-hmm. And um, you don't actually know what you're running. And maybe the jar file or artifact, you know, tells you something about the source that was used to produce it, but the process that was used to produce it is often opaque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any of that could be wrong because there's a lot of human steps involved in producing artifacts. So I'd like to get closer to, you know, because so many people use Git, um, to get closer to leveraging, you know, some of the features there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, you know, using SHAs and content-based addressing to talk about things. Um, I had worked on a library called Codec, which we'll have a new version of soon that sort of extends the Git model down to the function level. So you would have mm-hmm. SHAs for individual functions and you could have dependencies on functions instead of on uh, artifacts. Uh, Mm-hmm. So a lot of work is happening around that, and some of that has manifested itself in this dependency uh, tool. Okay. So one of the um, like I'm, I'm thinking about dependencies and and what happens when I upgrade my dependencies, like in my Java project, um, and I get a whole bunch of compiler fa- uh, like errors. But um, in Clojure, they would be runtime errors, right? Uh, like how how do you deal with that? Um, because Clojure is a dynamic language, so you do, it's not compiled. Um, when you upgrade a library and it's incompatible, like how does Clojure know what what happens then? Well, there's a lot of presumptions in that question. There are. <laughs> there are a lot of so, presumptions. So uh, the first thing I would say is what you're talking about are symptoms, right? Yeah. Uh, the problem is not that you know the problems are found later or earlier or that they manifest themselves as compilation errors or runtime errors, uh, but the fact that your library provider broke your program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something I I don't think should happen uh, as nearly as often as it does, Mm -hmm. and is actually quite avoidable. Um, But unfortunately, we're taking... (laughs) We still do place-oriented programming uh, in the library space. Okay. So you could say that library, you know, foo is a place. Mm-hmm. And every time I look at that place, I find a different library. And sure enough, the values are just changing out from under me and the things I depended upon are no longer true. Mm-hmm. Um, when a library breaks, it can break in many ways. Some of those may or may not be manifest in types. Others would just be manifest in behavior or missing information or additional requirements things that you can't express in types because most of what your program needs to do uh, can't be expressed in the type systems we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it still takes a string uh, and it still returns a map of information, but it stopped returning you some of that information or it started returning other stuff or it had additional requirements about mm-hmm. the string. You know, the types don't capture that. So does spec help with that problem? Of knowing what actually goes into your function and what comes out. So there, there are a couple of there are a couple of different problems here. Um, if we stick at the library level, uh, one of the problems is this, you know, breaking things. Mm-hmm. And I think I think one of the problems we have is that uh, we we think about change generically as if change was a thing, uh, but there there are really two very distinct kinds of change. 
There are breaking changes mm-hmm. uh, where your expectations have been violated. And there are accretions where there's just some more stuff where there wasn't stuff before. And in general, in general, accretion is not breaking. Mm-hmm. So if I had a library I was using and it had functions A, B, C, and version 1.2 of the library added functions X, Y, Z, my code that used ABC is unaffected by that. Mm-hmm. So if you take that idea of what accretion means, you can now apply that to uh, things like argument lists or return values. Mm-hmm. And you can start talking about what a function either requires or provides. Mm-hmm. So let's say I had a function, one of those ABCs that already exists and you're already calling, and I want to enhance it. Mm-hmm. Well, if I require more from you than I used to, I've broken you. Mm-hmm. If I require less from you than I used to, I haven't. Uh, on the return value side, if I provide more to you than I used to provide, I haven't broken you. But if I provide less, then I have. If I provide less than what I used to promise. And so there's a real directionality to... Uh, the contracts of functions mm-hmm. and code. And there are changes you can make in both directions um, that are compatible with existing consumers and changes you can make that are not. And when you understand you know, that you're either adding requirements breaks and removing requirements doesn't and providing more doesn't break and re- providing less does uh, break, then you could say all the non-breaking changes are evolution compatible. They allow programs to evolve. They allow them to evolve independently, which are super critical properties for systems to run over a long period of time. And uh, I think that it's a big mistake to say, well, static types allow me to break people and they can figure it out. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you don't want to do. And so I would say that if you're going to break someone at all, just don't and <laughs> okay. call the function, you know, D or A2, mm-hmm. right? And leave A around. Yeah. These are the mm-hmm. same kinds of strategies that we use uh, at the, like, the service level in order to have loosely coupled systems that don't break consumers and allow uh, consumers and servers, clients and servers to independently evolve. And it's just as important in the small uh, I think that it's, a, again, a sort of a big problem that uh, we think about change sort of generically and we think about uh, typing tools as tools to enable uh, breakage. Okay. Um, and that makes for brittle programs. Um, and it was certainly my experience uh, before Clojure uh, working with static type systems that all the systems were incredibly brittle. Mm-hmm. And eventually the cost of change just got so high you know, every system eventually got thrown away because the cost of change became too great. Mm-hmm. So in these functions, uh, is it usually like you would take a map and return a map? Um, because I can imagine, like, even if I were to change a function and say, oh, I need something else, um, if I change the arity of the function, that's also breakage. I mean, I can put another function next to it or change, like, make it a var arc function. Um, but essentially, so, uh, like... Every time I need something new, I, I guess I would, I personally would go for 
creating functions with like a couple of arguments as opposed to uh, like putting everything in a map. But uh, maybe that's not the best way to do it. <laughs> so it, it ends up being the case, and this directly connects to spec and to your question from before. You know, mm -hmm. is spec in, is spec in this space trying to you know contend with these challenges of uh, allowing you to talk about what how, what your program does and uh, determine that it works and allow you to communicate to consumers about your you know contracts and uh, it does in fact and the way it does is it allows you to talk about either function signatures or data structures uh, using one of two logics one it would be set logic around maps and map keys and the other would be regular expressions for things that are sequential like uh, function argument lists are an mm -hmm. example of a sequential contract and it ends up in both spaces those ideas i talked about before about requiring uh less or providing more uh, both apply if you think about a set of keys um, if you're accepting that as ar an argument then uh, to require more keys would break, be breaking, but to require fewer keys would not. Mm -hmm. If you're returning maps, then uh, to return more would be non-breaking, and to return less, at least about the things you said promised you would return, uh, would be breaking. Uh, so the same ideas apply. So you can talk about maps, and you can, uh, well, we're still working on the language to make it precise to talk about providing and requiring uh, certain keys. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is in the regular expression space, there's also a notion of regular expression compatibility, uh, which is to say there's logic behind regular expressions that allows you to say that this regular expression can accept all things this other one could, but maybe some additional things. And you could leverage that logic to actually make, you know, non-breaking changes to uh, function arity. Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, if you could take two arguments before and now you could take two or three, you haven't broken anyone as long as you haven't changed the meaning of what it means to pass two. Okay. You've just enabled people to be able to pass three. And I, I, I think it's essential for people to start understanding uh, what it means to provide or require and to look at their changes in that light. It's certainly one of the long-term objectives that uh, for spec we will um, take the expressions you make in spec about providing and requiring and turn that into a test for change to say, you know, if I want to modify this spec and it's a, you know, a, a spec about requiring, uh, mm -hmm. is it compatible it, or is it breaking? And if it's breaking, you know, we won't allow it. And on the same thing, it flip, flipped around on the return side. Um, mm -hmm. So what is like, what does spec look like? So spec is a predicative uh, uh, language about uh, data. Mm -hmm. So, so much enclosure is data. We express all of our uh, information as generic data. We write code as data structures. Um, we use data structures as, uh, you know, domain-specific languages for configuration or HTML and pretty much everything. So the idea is to say, um, to have an open system that is not limited to any particular logic or static verifiability, but to say, any predicates you want, uh, you can write regular closure code, 
And you can basically say what you consider to be required to be true of a data structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do that either in the small with you know assertions about um, uh, you know the types of uh, atomic things like numbers or booleans. And then in the large, you use one of these other two techniques talking about either uh, ma- maps and the sets of keys associated with maps or uh, with regular expressions for sequences. Uh, and most of the sequences, you know, people tend not to use sequential things in uh, like wire protocols and uh, mm-hmm. uh, service contracts because they're terrible. <laughs> they're very, they're very brittle. Uh, but we do, you know, still use sequentiality and function signatures, so it's necessary for that. And then, uh, so you write these expressions, and they're just, uh, uh, it's just like a little domain-specific language. Uh, but it's independent of the closure code. You can write specs for things that you wrote or things that other people wrote, and they haven't spec themselves. If you're trying to understand a library, you can write um, some spec expressions about it and see if they are if they hold. And the first job of spec, given one of these uh, specs, is to do validation, which is what mm-hmm. you would expect. You know, I, I have this predicate about this data structure. You know, is it true of this particular value? Uh, but spec does a lot more because it also does um, generative test. It does generation, so it can generate data that satisfies the predicate. So you can say, you know, I have this. Uh, function and I said it returns this shape and you can say exercise this spec and it will generate a bunch of those shapes Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the underpinnings of the next feature which is that uh, spec supports um, generative testing you know quick quick uh, quick check style testing Mm -hmm. so if you spec you know some some or all of your code and it's not it's not a type system it's not necessary for it to be complete or for there to be uh, types everywhere. Um, it's not like types, it's, it's really predicates. But for whatever predicates you've defined on functions, um, spec can automatically generate data to test those functions, you know, taking it through a random space and validate that uh, the functions work, um, that they are returning what, um, what they say they will. And remember, these are, not, these are arbitrary predicates. So the predicates of what you return um, can include uh, what you put in as part of the argument, so you actually can spec the behavior of a function as opposed to just it has you know its return value has some particular shape. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, for instance, make sure that you know if you were past a collection coming in, every every member of that collection coming in is present in the collection going out, okay. and various other value things like that. Uh, so the idea behind the testing is that uh, these are not these validations and these tests are not for production runtime. Okay. Uh, all the tools are set up to allow you to do this work prior to release. That it's part of the development time uh, and testing phase of development, and all the all the checks and everything are turned off at runtime. Uh, you can still use spec if you want to to be a you know gatekeeper on a the end of a wire, for instance, mm-hmm. because you can use spec to define uh, specs for wire protocols and communications protocols. And so that's something you might want to leave in in production. But otherwise, there's no overhead associated with using spec. Um, okay. So at runtime, you, you, there's the assumption that everything, like a production runtime, 
you assume that you've done so much generative testing that it must be like the, the functions must um, uh, be the correct specification. So we don't have to do the same checks during runtime at production. Well, I mean, you can make whatever decisions you make ordinarily. Yeah. Uh, but it's no different from static systems. They have tests too, and they can either run those tests all the time or just before they ship. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the what you can express with spec is uh, way more than you can expe- uh, express with a type system. Is it sufficient? Because I, I did, I came from a background of doing a little bit of like a formal specific, like formal validation and specifications of like secure, like uh, safety critical systems. Would spec be helpful in that context? Because that's one one area that I personally find um, like a type system or some kind of proof. Like I want to have a proof that my program actually does what uh, what it says it's going to do. Um, because someone life, someone's life is on the line, but would spec be? Yeah, well, that's. Not, I mean, so that that's that's. Uh, I consider that pretty, pretty much hyperbole. So let's take the function reverse. Yeah. Okay. So in Haskell, reverse has a type of list of A to list of A. Mm-hmm. If that type checks, do you know that that works? No. No, and that's true of most of your statically typed software. Most of what's important about what they do is not captured by the type systems because they're, they are not semantic in the first place. They're mostly just mechanical. And the logics they have are pretty weak. Um, mm-hmm. I think if I had a safety-critical system, I'd be looking outside of a type system because they're so anemic to uh, you know a stronger uh, formal verification system that is outside of the program. You know, if you want to write an algorithm to make sure you were doing spin locks correctly or distributed transactions correctly. Uh, people do use proof systems for that, but they don't use the ones built into programming languages. They use much more powerful ones. <laughs> that is true. Um, so so I'm, not, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I'm mostly advocating that, like spec, it be a la carte. Yeah, okay. Um, you, you also created Datomic, um, yes. Could you talk a little bit about just what that is um, and what it what its current state is? Sure. So Datomic is you know <laughs> somewhat pointed at the same problems that Closure is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are too complicated, and we're doing place oriented programming. And the other big place you have left once you switch to a functional programming language is your database. <clears throat> so you know you can do whatever you want. You can use Closure or Scala or Haskell. And then, you know, this database ruins everything for you because it is a place and most databases update in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so there's all the complexity associated with, with that, that there is with using places, you know, in memory. What Datomic endeavors to do is to say, uh, let's stop doing that. Uh, we have a lot more storage space than we ever did. And uh, we have enough that we could take a functional approach to storing our data. And uh, I, you know, I think people already realize this. People are certainly logging everything and keeping everything and going append only. Um, the real value proposition of Datomic is to both, again, sort of only accrete information, not change it in place, um, but also provide the logical support for accessing that 
and in particular for allowing you to use the database at a point in time as if it were a value in your program. Mm -hmm. um, that is the big trick of Datomic. Okay. Um, when you do that, a lot of things that were complex become straightforward, just like when you move away from mutable variables to values, you're able to say, well, you know, of course I can perform three distinct operations with this value and not worry about the consistency of their results because the value might have changed. Um, that is a hard thing with update in place databases. You do three queries and, you know, if stuff happened in between, then the basis for the queries, it was different and their results can't be correlated. Um, mm -hmm. With Datomic, even if things have accreted uh, in between your three operations, you could treat the database as a value and perform three operations and now you get results that are consistent between them. Okay. Uh, so that's the idea behind Datomic and the state of it is we're right on the verge of shipping uh, the cloud version of Datomic. So okay. it, had, it had been software that you run on your own behalf uh, with a traditional install and now we will have an offering in Amazon's AWS Marketplace Mm -hmm. uh, for getting Datomic that way, um, you'll have the ability to get a Datomic instance up for you know around a dollar a day oh. uh, to get started and explore it, and uh, and then we have different you know production you know levels of uh, of instances and uh, deployments. Uh, so we're hopeful that will make it a lot more accessible mm -hmm. and uh, certainly help people program for the cloud. Uh, I think, you know, again, we see in that space a lot of complexity as people take software that was written for a stable network. You know, with machines, you could go and, you know, put stickers on with pet names and kick and, you know, unplug and plug back in and replace the hard drives in to this more ephemeral uh, world of the cloud. And as you move data center software up to the cloud, you struggle with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Datomic cloud was written for that environment um uh so uh it's a lot more you know it's completely tuned for working with amazon's uh logging and metric systems and uh encryption systems and things like that so we're hopeful that will make uh you know closure a really good language for doing cloud development because you'll have this tool that's compatible with that mm-hmm Oh, awesome. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> um, in your opinion, is there a benefit to opinionated approach to program architecture? Um, just like I, I know like I have some people who, who talk to me about Clojure and, and they're coming from like the Rails world or, or like the Spring Boot in Java and they're like, how do I write a web application in Clojure? And I'm like, well, you can use all these different libraries and they compose together, but you can kind of like pick and choose and and I don't know, I, I think it's one of the reasons it's kind of difficult. Well, it's not that difficult, but it's a reason that makes it more difficult to get started because there's just so many options. Um, so is there a benefit to like having a standard stack? Uh, we can say this is what you should use. Well, some parts of that question are social. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, which, which uh, you know, I, I can't really speak to. I think uh, certainly when somebody figures out how to do web development, they should encode it in a framework. Okay. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's a solved problem. 
Okay. And I think until it is a solved problem, uh, opinions are very much opinions, and uh, and therefore, you know, you're at risk uh, adopting a set of opinions that may not be an answer. Okay. Um, I certainly let the community, you know, find its own way in this area. I think we have some very talented people doing really good work, including David Nolan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that it, it's it's really important to be able to say, I you know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know yet. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go code up this big thing because you know some of the things that you're talking about is being you know standard. Uh, they also have a bunch of known shortcomings. Um, so while socially it's straightforward to say everybody's doing X, mm-hmm. um, you may not like doing X after you've done it for a while and found all the problems. Mm-hmm. It kind of leads into my next question is, uh, what other problems do you think there are left to solve? Um, uh, well, I certainly think this dependency problem and, and, Program evolution is is a big, you know, question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly build programs out of parts, uh, and now we build, you know, systems out of programs. And so the whole idea of, you know, programming, and you know, in the old days, a program was completely self sufficient, almost used no libraries, was written by one person, ran on one processor, and knew everything. Mm-hmm. And and now a program is just a dot in a big picture of the system. And there are many programs, maybe more than one programming language. There's a database or more than one database. There are wires Mm -hmm. and wire protocols and things like that. And I think that um, when you think about that kind of a system, you end up with a bunch of um, pressures and concerns around things like what I was talking about before. What, What are your promises? What do you require? What do you provide? How do you talk Mm -hmm. about them in a way that supports evolution, because it's simply insufficient to say today we have we know the type of everything and we've encoded it all and we've all agreed and we've all recompiled and it all works perfectly. Uh, and then you know tomorrow, if anything changes, everybody needs to stop and uh, rebuild. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't work. I mean, that's not the way the internet was built, and that's just not the way bigger systems work. And uh, and I think we're suffering in the small from uh, a bunch uh, from not paying attention to those same concerns. Uh, like you said, you know, feeling like it's a it's a regular thing to have a library break you, and thank goodness your type system helps you uh, figure out some portion of how you got broken. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, that shouldn't be happening, and uh, so I think that's a that's a big area um, to the extent that we had relied on our languages as sort of tools for encoding our understanding of the problems we're trying to solve. That's obviously inadequate now because the programs are always sub problems Mm -hmm. and uh, it's more important to talk like it's way more important for an architect to be talking about the schema of their database and the wire protocols than it is about, you know, types in any programming language. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. matter which. Uh, so, you know, when do you start talking about that stuff? How do you talk about it? What's nice about something like spec is it's just as good at talking about wire protocols and datomic mm-hmm. schemas as it is about closure. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. In fact, it really has nothing to do with closure. And yeah. it's things like that, I think, uh, that's an area for growth. We need more of that. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's actually going to be solved? I mean, I, I'm just thinking, like, is that, I don't, I, maybe I'm just too much of a pessimist. Like, <laughs> um, I guess like, maybe I just always expect that someone will go and break the library at some point in the future. Um, and it's all futile. And <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I think it's hard, right? Because until you until you're able to disentangle breaking change from compatible change, you sort of can only shrug at this problem. Uh, but if we had more tools that could say, no, 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 this change is a breaking change and this change is a compatible change, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't just be this black box of change. Yeah. Um, similarly, if you had more insight into the granularity of changes in a library as opposed to just knowing this giant artifact with all its dependencies move from, you know, 1.2 to 1.3. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just who knows what's different yeah. um, to, to actually know. And again, things like spec and specs and things like codec that give you more insight to dependencies that find your granularity will at least allow you to start having conversations with people about what they're doing and what you're doing and what what the promises actually are. Uh, but a, a big part of it is certainly social. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. it, it, I think one of the things that's been nice about Clojure is, because uh, you talked about opinionated, and I think you meant more in the area of like framework. Uh, but yeah. I think certainly Clojure is opinionated uh, in its design and, and sort of what it makes idiomatic and what it makes hard even. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that does help people uh, make decisions. At least they have, one, an example, and two, hopefully, reusable tools they can use to emulate the example. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you have more of that, I think you make it easier for people to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess that would be another sort of objective of closure would be to help make it easier for people to do the right thing. Yeah. But that that can't that can't be solved like by one programming language, um, because I, it, there probably will not be like a homogeneous uh, programming environment. Uh, like one system is written only in this language. Um, I mean, I don't think Java is going anywhere anytime soon. There will probably be people writing Java applications that we have to take into account in some way or shape. Right, um, so where where programs meet each other are on wire protocols, where you know we're not using Java <laughs> serialization over mm -hmm. wires. Uh, so what are we saying there? What you know what what are we saying about that stuff? And um, you know, people are trying things. I think a lot of what they're trying uh, has a lot of the shortcomings of static typing in terms of not being evolution uh, oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think you'll see more work on that. Certainly other things that we've done in the closure dev space have been around that, uh, defining something like Eden and things like transit, which are mm -hmm. wire protocols, mm -hmm. uh, is part of the job. It's not about closure of the language. It's about uh, tools for communicating. Mm -hmm. um, spec will be something that can work on wire protocols. Uh, there Eden may be other things. 
Yeah. Oh, sorry, I go just ahead. wanted to ask if Eden uh, is used in other programming languages besides Clojure. So Eden is not um, for reasonable reasons. I think that uh, you know if you're going to solve the protocol problem, you've got to be able to reach the browser. Mm-hmm. And that's why we worked on Transit. And Transit is actually quite good at communicating okay. uh, between languages and to the browser. So the performance of Transit so to the browser. Transit? Transit is just another way to encode sort of the same set of data structures. So Eden mm-hmm. can encode the data structures of Clojure, which I consider to sort of just be the basic data structures. You know, you have some atomic types like integers and floating point numbers and Booleans and strings. And then you have maps and sets and vectors and lists. Uh, so Eden can encode all those things. Transit can encode those same things. Uh, mm-hmm. It also, like Eden, is extensible in that you could define uh, new uh, new things in terms of the things that are built in. Uh, so if you want to have a record type or something like that, you could define that. Um, but what it has over Eden is Eden is sort of a character format, and uh, Transit has encodings, uh, in particular, directly to JSON. Oh, okay. Uh, but it can be faster to transfer stuff through Transit over JSON than it can to transfer JSON sometimes to the browser, mm-hmm. because uh, Transit incorporates things like redundancy, compression, and stuff like that. Um, so that's an effective thing, and I know people are using it from different languages. Okay. So uh, that's not to say like it's as popular as protocol buffers or something like that. But uh, I do think this is this is the area, this is the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are protocols and also protocols or specifications for services? How do you mm-hmm. talk about what your service expects, what it requires, what it provides in a way that is uh, compatible with evolution? Yeah, uh, I'd like to have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the, oh, we changed the format of the date string. So uh, now my program broke. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, you know, we're having a conversation right now about what what is breaking change or not. Yeah. Um, Ten years ago, the conversations we were having about functional versus, you know, mutation were uh, seemed as novel. Um, mm-hmm. And now, you know, it's quite common. I, I think that even in languages that are not primarily functional, uh, the emphasis on a functional approach uh, is widespread. Mm-hmm. And we've certainly seen a lot of the closure ideas incorporated in the JavaScript community. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not, not just because David Nolan is so charismatic, but because uh, <laughs> the, they, they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, I think that you know I'm I'm more hopeful. Uh, I I can't solve the social problems, but I think we can make tools and make examples that make again doing the right thing uh, more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's interesting because I uh, started programming maybe seven eight years ago, and um, I was kind of brainwashed into believing that immutability was the only correct way, like from very very early on, and so I don't understand like object orientation really, uh-huh. and I always try to like 
like I have to program in Java and people are like sending me things and I'm like, why do you, why do you do it like that? I don't understand. You could just make it public, like final, like, you know, it doesn't have to change. Um, so I, I, I just don't know. Um, like, yeah, I don't understand object orientation. That was more of a comment. That wasn't a question. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, you know, so, uh, you know, that's the thing. I, I think, um, as long as people are writing functional languages and writing in functional languages, um, they will serve as examples. And some younger programmers will uh, never have seen something else, and you know won't have to unlearn <laughs> a bunch of bad habits. Yeah, unless I art. No, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I don't know anything else, and so I'm like, like. Sometimes people ask me, like, why I like functional programming so much. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it just feels right. Like, I don't have a good reason. I can't, I can't, like, argue it from the perspective of someone who came, like, from object orientation. And apparently there's a whole bunch of problems with that. And um, I just usually say, oh, I like it. <laughs> um, don't really know. Uh, I can't argue the point as well as some, maybe, for that reason. It's worth uh, it's worth learning enough about the other to argue the point mm -hmm. uh, objectively, so it isn't just a preference yeah. uh, thing. That's what I think. I would like to like. I would like to do that. I mean, I, I don't want to just choose something for because everyone's doing it. Kind of. Mm -hmm. I feel like functional programming is a trend now, and everyone's jumping on the functional programming bandwagon. Um, but I would like to have a reason behind that, uh, not just because everyone else is doing it. <laughs> uh, functional programs are simpler uh, for the you know the deep definition of simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you've challenged some of the conventional ideas of programming, um, like the reliance on mutable data and changing data in place. Um, but also practices like agile software development and the obsession with testing. What's your view about the ideal way an efficient team of developers should go about programming? Uh, they should spend a lot of time thinking about what problem they're trying to solve before they do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the number one problem in programming. The time is not spent and people flounder around. Um, if you did that, uh, mm -hmm. You could probably do well with almost any set of tools. So, you know, I don't make tools sort of preeminent in uh, in programming success. Yeah. Uh, I think if you have, you know, if you really are good problem solvers and are focused on the problem uh, and, you know, decomposing the problem and problems, uh, you're going to, you're going to do well. Um, I... I don't think that people should uh, write a lot of tests. Mm -hmm. I think people should run a lot of tests. Uh, we don't have better technology than testing for uh, determining that our software does what it's supposed to do from a real-world requirements yeah. perspective, what it's supposed to do. Uh, so we need to be able to say what it's supposed to do uh, and then hopefully get some... Uh, technology <laughs> helping mm -hmm. us to to determine that, and the best technology right now for that are things like QuickCheck, uh, that kind of generative testing. 
So instead of writing a test that is an example of one successful execution, mm -hmm. what you should write are properties or specs in the case of spec and let the computer, you know, write a million tests for you and run them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm a big proponent of testing. I'm not a big proponent of test writing and, yeah. the, you know, the way people test, I think is pretty terrible until you adopt generative testing and property-based testing and specification-driven testing, um, where there's a tremendous amount of power. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So I think you want to adopt that. That that would be my next piece of advice. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly, you want to be doing functional programming primarily. Yeah. Uh, not that you can, you know, avoid doing anything else at all times, but that should be the default mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, and I think you should be working in a language that makes uh, those things idiomatic uh, so that you're not fighting uh, against a, a different mm -hmm. paradigm. So while people can do object-oriented Java or JavaScript, uh, I think it's always, I'm, I'm sorry, do functional style uh, mm -hmm. Java or JavaScript, uh, it's never going to be idiomatic. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to look awkward, feel awkward, yeah, confuse your sure. coworkers. Uh, so, uh, so these languages have a lot, a lot to offer. Uh, How, is there any signs that you you can like if you're solving the wrong problem? <laughs> Uh, how do you figure that out with in enough time that you can kind of change and solve the right one instead? Because testing doesn't prove that I'm solving the right problem. It proves no, that what I all, yeah. did, like what I, the code that I wrote, uh, does what I think it should write, which, which does what I think it should do, uh, which is good. But if I'm solving the wrong problem, there's a pro there's it, it's all wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you know there there are there are two things, right? There could be just the wrong problem in general, or you haven't uh, decomposed the problem uh, mm -hmm. well. And uh, the, the, I don't know of any magic recipes. You're outside of technology at that point. Yeah, uh, I think you've got to. I mean, it, it's certainly it's it's funny because I think programmers, especially young programmers, they use far too much of their brain power on programming stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, learning the idiosyncrasies of a programming language, learning some really, you know, arcane type system stuff, or, mm -hmm. you know, tons of details about some gigantic JavaScript, you know, UI library du jour, uh, and not nearly as much time uh, on the domains in which they operate. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of one of the coolest things about programming is, you know, and you know, I tell this to people who want to take up computer science or whatever is that you really get you really get two specialties or more uh, you you get to learn about computer science and programming and things like that but you also always are applying it in a domain and unless you're a compiler writer or a theorem mm -hmm. prover writer you're going to have some other domain you might be doing medical imaging stuff or music scheduling or uh, you know uh, writing an election system or a climate analysis thing or you know e-commerce uh and these are big fascinating domains with lots of interesting uh aspects you know mm -hmm. i think a good programmer uh, is is highly engaged with the domain side of what they're doing 
Uh, and so I'd rather see people spend a lot more time there. And that helps you with the, am I solving the right problem? Okay. Uh, are you, you know, how much of your brain time are you spending there? You know, did you spend 10 minutes with somebody in the domain? And then, you know, you think you're just smart enough to go run off and code it up, or maybe you took everything they said, you know, uh, at, at face value and, and never questioned it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times users in a domain say they need X and, you know, a good programmer or a good systems analyst was the old time name for it, uh, would know how to turn that into a conversation where um, you would take a step back from saying, all right, I know you're presuming you need this answer, mm-hmm. uh, but let's roll back a little bit more towards your problem. And maybe if I understand your problem better, we'll have you know more than one possible answer, and those answers will have you know different trade-offs or different characteristics. And mm-hmm. uh, that is that's where the work is. That's certainly where I spend most of my time. Mm-hmm. I'd rather I'd rather chew on a problem uh, for you know <laughs> ten days out of two weeks uh, and code for the other four uh, than to agilely rewrite it six times in four weeks. <laughs> In four weeks, and then still have it be wrong. Yeah. Okay. Um, are there any like technical things that uh, that are worth looking into? I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of times um, the like younger programmers come and they're like, "Oh, I have lots of great ideas," and they do exactly the same errors as the the people who were learning to program fifteen years ahead of time. And there's some I know there's some great ideas like from the seventies and eighties, um, but I never know like. If I have, I have, I guess my question is, I have a lot of time ahead of me, um, uh, personally, and um, and I know I I have a lot of brain time ahead of me, which I'm looking forward to. But I also would, if you could give some tips about what direction I should use my brain energy on, that'd be good. Uh, well, I think. Um you know, people talk about reading papers and whatever, but I, I certainly would point anyone who wants to learn more about programming to the papers from the old days of computer science, mm-hmm. uh, from the days of, you know, Lisp and Smalltalk, uh, when the people who were writing computer science papers were also writing systems. Mm-hmm. They were trying to write, you know, logic systems or reasoning systems or chess playing systems or user interfaces or the first databases. Uh, The earlier computer science papers, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, from those communities especially, are are very special in that you've got the work of people who are, obviously, they're still researchers and they're still doing theoretical stuff, but the level of practice Mm -hmm. uh, that was present there is quite evidently different um, than at least what gets published today, which is just math. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of system stuff that's really fascinating, like reading about self and what they were doing to try to optimize dispatch. Uh, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, you, really cool. Could you, do you know them off the top of your head? Uh, like, could you name some papers to look into? Or? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, yeah. you can find that you can find the self paper, uh, okay. from, what? uh, okay. Self paper. Self is the name of programming language. And okay. yeah, there's a good paper probably in the history of programming languages. It's sort of a big summary of okay. the whole project, but, uh, but all those papers, you know, the small talk papers and the common list papers and the Lisp and scheme, 
uh, papers are all really good. Um, okay. Well, I will try to look for them and uh, put them in the show notes for any listeners. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I had a, a great time talking to you. Uh, yes, you well, thank you. Me. It was a yes. lot of fun. And thank you for creating closure. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So to all our listeners, until next time. <laughs>